Well, good morning. Last week we started a series on the book of Ruth. And if you were not here, let me give you a quick rundown of what we saw in Ruth chapter 1. The people of God had been disobedient all throughout the book of Judges. It was a time of chaos. It was a time where everyone disregarded God and did what was right in their own eyes. And one man named Elimelech bells on the people of God. He bells on the presence of God. So right away we learned from bad leadership. Don't follow in the footsteps of Elimelech. Don't make the mistake of prioritizing the provision of bread over the presence of God. He leads them away and then his sons disobey the Lord and they marry these Moabite women, these pagan women. And then Elimelech dies and then both his sons die and Naomi is left with nothing or so she thought. But Ruth is committed to staying with her. She said, where you're going, I'm going. Your God is my God. We see the conversion of Ruth the Moabite. She turns from worshiping the false god Chemosh to worshiping the one true and living God, Yahweh. And she hears that God visits his people. Bethlehem, the house of bread, was empty. God restocks the house of bread. And so she returns, remember, and she changed her name to Bitter. She had a little frowny face on her name tag as she comes back to town. She knows God's in control, but because things have been hard, she wrongly interprets her trials to assume that God is against her. But little does she know what God is up to. And so we learn again, don't be like Naomi. Trust in the Lord. Instead, we ought to be like Ruth, who we saw gives of herself, leaves everything to care for her bitter mother-in-law. And this morning, we're going to see yet more of her virtue and of her trust in the Lord. And so let's turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 208. 208, and if you don't have a few Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. And let's read all of Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. 
The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women. Lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. So just like last week, there were three scenes. This morning, we have three scenes as well. You have first, Ruth and Naomi. Then scene two, Ruth meets Boaz. And then scene three, Ruth returning to Naomi. So three main characters here. And really, the main point is nothing just happens for those who trust in the Lord. So let's look at first scene here, Ruth and Naomi in verses 1 to 3. Look again at Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So if we've been reading already, we're saying, wait a minute here. I thought Naomi was empty. She was not empty. She had a daughter-in-law who had left everything to be with her. Now we learn she had a relative named Boaz, a potential redeemer. Remember what happened? She was allowing her, her trials to skew her thinking, thinking God was against her. Again, when you wrongly think that God is against you as a child of God, we tend to over-exaggerate our hopelessness, and that's what she's doing. She has a relative. Two key facts about him right here. Number one, he's a relative. Number two, he's a worthy man. And this phrase, worthy man, was often used in the Old Testament to speak of the mighty men of valor. Strong men, mighty men, valiant men, able men. Boaz is a man of character. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of dignity, strength, kindness. He's got a good reputation before the Lord. He's got a good reputation before the community. His name means strong or maybe quick. Probably a track guy. Like Cody Bingham, I was talking with Cody. He's like, so are you pretty good in high school? And he's like, yeah. Like, you know, real good? Yeah. Like state champion? Yeah. 
Like more than one year state champion? Yeah. <laughs> Strong, quick, a man of standing, noble character, man who has strength, ability, courage, influence, integrity, success. He's worthy. Second fact, he's one of their relatives. Hold on to that now for just a little while. A little later, we're going to see why that is a game changer. But Naomi had forgot about Boaz. And Ruth is oblivious to him and oblivious to the whole deal. They're going to learn all about this later. But the ultimate author, God, wants us, the reader, to know this insider information. Boaz is going to be important in this story. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So here we have Ruth. She is an industrious gal. She has initiative, and so she decides to get to work. She doesn't hit up the single hot spots. She doesn't just sit back and pray for provision. She probably did pray for provision, but she prays and she gets to work. I think that's important. The message of the Bible is not let go and let God. The message of the Bible is trust God and get going. And so she does. She rolls up her sleeve. She sets out. She gets to work. And through her work, the Lord was at work. She says, let me go, let me glean, let me find someone in whose side I shall find favor. And there's that same word we've seen so many times, hesed. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament to speak of God's loving kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness. And so who would she experience the hesed of God through? Well, remember how chapter 1 ends. Look there at chapter 1, verse 22. They return... Naomi returned and Ruth and Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Extremely important timing. It was providential that they arrived back in town when they did. See, God had commanded landowners to leave some of the crop behind for the poor during the barley harvest. I love this. Listen to Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 9, God commands, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. A little bit later in Leviticus, he repeats himself in chapter 23, in case they missed it. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God cares about the poor. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall, not be, for the, it shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The margins were to be left 
for the marginalized. God's providing for his people, especially for the poor. God cares for the fatherless and for the widow and even for the sojourner, for the stranger. I love this about our God. He cares about the poor. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you've been there. I've been there. We grew up po. P-O. We couldn't afford the O-R. I mean, we had this house. It was just normal at the time, but now we refer as the Roach House. <laughs> it had an address. I couldn't tell you what it was. We, the Roach House. I mean, it was the place to be if you were a roach. Tiny little house. You had to go outside to change your mind. You had roaches moving out. It was two cramps for the roach. Run out of, run out of milk. Mom, we need some milk for the cereal. You better put some water on that cereal. <laughs> But hey, I went to college for free, hashtag Pell Grant. <laughs> but God cares about the poor. God provides for the poor. He provides for the marginalized. So much so, he put a cap on the capitalism of his people. Said, you're going to go this far no more. Leave it. It was the ancient Near Eastern version of a soup kitchen or a food bank. It's the ancient Israelite welfare system. He cares about widows. And in that culture especially, widows had it hard. And so gleaning was a crucial way for them to make a living. And so Ruth heads out to glean because it was the time of the barley harvest. And notice what verse 3 said. She happened to come to Boaz's part of the field. Now, our English actually smooths it out a little bit. If you tried to translate it real woodenly, it sounds something like this. The happenstance that happened to her was she landed in Boaz's field. She just happened to come to town at the time of the barley harvest she just happened to end up in the part of the field that Boaz owns. Now, of course, the author knows nothing just happens, which is why he writes this way. He wants us to sit up, wants us to pay attention. By chance, she landed in the part of the field that owned, owned by Boaz. As it turned out, she landed in Boaz's part. The narrator winks at us from this verse. As Spurgeon puts it, on how small an incident the greatest results may hinge. The pivots of history are microscopic. There really are no coincidences in life. God is in control. God is providentially ordering all of history at the micro level. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And at the macro level, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so she lands exactly where the Lord wants her to land. And the author mentions again that Boaz was of the clan of Elimelech. He kind of repeats that. He wants us to keep this in mind. God's at work. And so that's the first scene. And then we move to the second scene here with Ruth and Boaz in verses 4 to 17. Look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Behold, Boaz. Look, there he is. It just so happens that Ruth is gleaning in his part of the field, and boom, it just so happens he shows up. Coincidence? No way. He comes in, and he comes in blessing his work. and says, the Lord be with you, and they respond with a blessing. And this is not just some cheap platitude. This man is centered on God, and he wants others centered on the blessing of the Lord. He's a worthy man. He worked hard, but he clearly didn't crush people in the process. He was a blessing to those underneath his authority. And his faith was known at work. There was no compartmentalization. You know, we're really good at that, where we compartmentalize things. 
You know, we have our, our Jesus is Sunday morning for an hour, and then Saturday might be our family or our hobby, and then Monday to Friday is money or greed or power or job, whatever it is. Not Boaz. His faith fueled everything he did. There was no sacred, secular divide for him. It was all sacred because he do, does everything, whether he eats or drinks, whatever he does for the glory of the Lord. I wonder if your coworkers know about your faith. Your coworkers know that you're a Christian, and I don't mean just an Abilene Christian. I mean a Bible-believing, born-again, Protestant, evangelical Christian. Do they know about your faith? Do they know about your church? Do they know about your values? Are you salt and light in the workplace? Boaz is a really good example of a godly man. He loves the Lord. He works hard. He's apparently successful in his work, but he doesn't love money and use people. He uses money and loves people, blesses employees. He's worthy. He's a man of standing. And we're going to see that he provides for and protects the marginalized. He shares the heart of his God. Give verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? In the original, check her out. <laughs> verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reaper. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here at Boaz, he's an honorable man. He first wants to see if she's spoken for. The servant fills him in and notes how hard Ruth's been working from early morning to now, just a short rest. She was no millennial. Just kidding. I'm technically a millennial, 82 to 2004. She puts in work, though. She's impressive. She has already selflessly committed herself to her bitter mother-in-law. She's humble. She takes initiative. She's caring, and now she's putting in sweat. Makes a plan and now demonstrates diligence in her work. She is an industrious woman. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Here we have a fairly, fairly lame Old Testament pickup line. Did it hurt? Did what hurt? When you fell from heaven? Hi, my name is Will. God's Will. Hey, baby, I was reading numbers last night. I realized I didn't have yours. <laughs> baby, you float my ark. I didn't believe in predestination till tonight. <laughs> Boaz says, just stay put. Just stay put. I've got you covered. I'm going to take care of you. They're going to leave you alone. I'm going to provide. Here we have the first anti-harassment policy in the workplace. They're going to leave you alone. In fact, you can have their water. No doubt a precious commodity with manual labor in the heat of harvest time. Just tell them Boaz said so. Boaz clearly an established, affluent man, but he cares for the poor. Again, he shares the heart of his God. Here's this young woman, nothing to offer, basically dumpster diving. And he wants to make sure she has everything she needs and more so. Look at verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Ruth is shocked. She's shocked and she is grateful. Why me? The chapter before we had Naomi with the why me of suffering. And now a day later we have the why me for abundant generosity. She knows she doesn't deserve this. She's a Moabite. She's an enemy of Israel. She's unclean. And again, remember, she doesn't know who Boaz is. She has no idea who he is or what the Lord is up to. But Boaz had heard about Ruth's character. Her track record has caught his eye. Heard about her integrity, about her faithful love, how she left it all behind for the sake of her mother-in-law. Boaz seems to be a little bit older, a bachelor. But notice he's looking for the right things. Noticing the right things, young men, not merely is she hot, but is she holy? Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. He's heard about her character, her selflessness, her willingness to leave her land for the sake of God. She probably reminded him of the father of his faith, Abraham, who was called to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And much like Abraham, that's what Ruth does. She leaves everything behind to follow the Lord. And so Boaz says, may the Lord repay you. And here's the beauty of this story. The Lord is repaying her through Boaz. Boaz is an embodiment of the Lord here. Through him, God is providing for his newfound daughter, Ruth, who had taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Common metaphor for trusting in the Lord for security and protection. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the Welch's grape juice. So she sat beside the reaper's and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah. Of barley. So Boaz invites this young Moabite widow to dinner and she sits among the workers and she eats till she's full. As I was thinking about this, I thought of those Brazilian steakhouses. Maybe you've been there, Fogo de Chao or Texas de Brazil. Uh, if you go, let me give you two pieces of advice. Number one, budget for about a month's worth of eating out. Number two, avoid the beautiful salad bar at all costs. Because that's how they trick you. Because how it is, is you just get meat all night. Really nice, different types of meat. I can't remember if you put up a flag like ponchos or turn over a coin or something. But they just keep bringing you meat until you're actually absolutely just stuffed. And here we have Ruth eating her fill. She is done. Even some left over. Bread, wine, roasted grain, provision, protection. Here we have the beginning of a love story. A romantic meal of roasted grain. And after dinner, she gets back to work. This time, Boaz opens up the floodgates, tells his men, let her glean even among the sheaves. 
Just like with the water, she's benefiting from their work. And he tells them, don't reproach her. You don't touch her. You don't talk to her. She's going to do whatever she wants. You're not going to say a word about it. You're going to make it easy. And so she gleans away. And at the end of the day, she ends up with an ephah of barley around five gallons, 30, 40, 50 pounds here. Normally, they would have just got a few pounds, gleaners. But here she comes away with an ephah. First Samuel says that an ephah of grain could feed up to 50 fighting men. Then we turn to the third scene, Ruth returning to Naomi in verses 18 and following. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So she heads home with all that she has, had to be a strong woman, not only 30 pounds of barley, but here we have the first doggy bags left over from dinner. Today was a good day. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She's at home. She's bitter, probably scrolling through Facebook, smirking at the screen. And in comes Ruth, hands full. Naomi just fumbles over her words, these rapid-fire questions. Where'd you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man that took notice of you. And Ruth fills her in. And verse 19, I love the way the author waits till the very last word to reveal. Look again at verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name, man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And then it all comes back to Naomi. She hasn't been thinking straight until now, and now she remembers the Lord has shown kindness. He hasn't forsaken me after all. And there's that word again, kindness, hesed. Naomi says, may the Lord bless him whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This is an answer to Naomi's prayer for her daughter-in-law's back in chapter 1. Flip over a page and look at chapter 1, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. And now we see the Lord showing kindness through the kindness of Boaz. And this is how it always works, which is why really everything we do is significant. The way God cares for his world is through his people. Luther spoke a lot about this, and he said that we in our jobs wear the masks of God. God provides for his people through people. God is showing kindness to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. And so, Mom, when you change that diaper and fold those clothes and cook those meals, that is God taking care of those precious little ones through your work. Walking down the street, delivering mail and mailboxes. Is God providing needed communication for you? Sometimes unneeded communication as well. Through a mailman, again, here's what Luther said. He says, God himself will milk the cows through him whose vocation that is. 
God provides milk for your fridge through people. God always provides through people, which again is why every one of your jobs is significant. I wonder if you view it that way. When we go out to eat, a server brings the food that a cook prepared that came by a delivery man from food processing factories, from butchers and ranchers and many and more, and they're all away. God is using them to give us this day our daily bread. God provides through his people, whether it's preaching or laundry or spreadsheets or phone calls, cups of coffee. And here God is providing for his daughters through Boaz. And here she says, Boaz is a relative of ours, one of our redeemers. The plot thickens. What does that mean? Well, here we need to know the law. And specifically, the law of what's known as the law of leveret marriage. Levir from Latin for husband's brother. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It's the law of leveret marriage. Read about it in Genesis with Onan. Jesus mentions it in Matthew chapter 23. It was just a known law in Israel. Remember the Sadducees, they tried to trap him and they say, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Just kind of known, law of lever of marriage. And so Boaz may not have been a brother, but he was a relative, a kinsman redeemer. And this word redeem is going to be important. It's going to be used 23 times in these four short chapters. So there is yet hope. Maybe Boaz can redeem them. He landed in his field. He's a relative. But in order to redeem, a man needed really three things. He needed to have the right, needed to have the resources, and needed to have the resolve. And so will that be him? Well, time will tell. Ruth didn't know it. Ruth wasn't raised in the church. She didn't know the law. She's a Moabite, so she doesn't understand the significance of all this. Ruth's just seeing right in front of her. She's providing bread. Naomi's looking down the road. Ruth saw barley. Naomi sees a bride. Ruth sees bread. Naomi's looking at wedding cake. Ruth just sees grain. Naomi's thinking grandkids. (laughs) The great reversal is beginning. This pagan widow left all to help her bitter mother-in-law. She came empty. Now she's full. Naomi is now realizing maybe God isn't against me after all. Maybe I was a little short-sighted. Maybe God is for me, like the word says again and again and again. Maybe I should change my name back to sweet, pleasant, no longer bitter. Back to Naomi, no longer Mara. Circumstances are different now. They turn from dismal to delightful. And just be encouraged, friends. Think how much can change in one day. What kindness of the Lord to the living and to the dead. But as we know, even the unborn, remember what the whole point of the book of Ruth is. Flip over to the end of the book, chapter 4. Let me read it to you again. I want to keep this before us. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. 
Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, and Amenadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So the Lord, through Boaz, is showing kindness, yes, to Naomi, yes, to Ruth, the living. He's showing kindness to the dead, Elimelech, who though he doesn't deserve it, he's providing for his family, but he's even showing kindness to the unborn, namely you and I, because the point of this story is a romance story that ends in a baby, that ends in a baby, that ends in a baby, that ends in a baby named Jesus Christ. What kindness of the Lord through Boaz, his servant. Look at verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And here we have the scariest verse in the Bible. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Naomi's like, this is good. This is a good thing. You ought to stick with Boaz. You'll be safe there. And so she does. Ruth just continues to grind. Scene closes. Really no progress yet. Here we have a layover. And we don't like layovers. I always find it interesting when people in airports complain so much. Oh, I'm here for another hour. And I'm like, man, you could be on a horseback going 37 hours. But here you are in a padded seat with air conditioning and Starbucks in your hand. You'll be home in an hour, man. Chill out. Here we have a layover. We don't like layovers, though. But sometimes we need layovers. Maybe there's some baggage that needs to be dropped off before we get where we're going. Maybe some some aren't going to make it to the final destination. Maybe you need to refuel. Maybe if you would have continued without the layover, you wouldn't have made it to where you're going. God has purposes in the layover. God has plans in Ruth and Naomi's layover. Keep trusting, keep obeying, you'll make it. Nothing just happens. Here in Ruth, we have in narratival form the beautiful doctrine of providence. Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about providence. It is God's works. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's what we see in Ruth. New Testament version, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so God is at work providentially arranging the details of our lives to accomplish his good purposes for his glory and for our good. Nothing just happens. God is at work. He's at work through our decisions. Even the bad ones. Elimelech leaves Bethlehem. To go to Moab, that was bad leadership. He should have stayed with the people in presence of God. But God works through it. How encouraging that your failures are not final. That your dumb decisions aren't determinative for your destiny. He's on the throne and he works through good and bad decisions. Ruth decides to set out and go to work. Again, God's at work. Through her work, God is at work through our trials, as we see with Naomi. Remember Cooper's hymn from last week? God moves in a mysterious way, and so we're counseled. 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We may not understand everything he's doing. Sometimes in his kindness, we see later. Sometimes we don't, and we're still called to trust him. But sometimes he shows us what he was doing. As the Puritan John Flavel put it, providence is much like a Hebrew word. It has to be read backwards. And so hear the word of God from Isaiah. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, that's the trial. If you're not there now, you soon will be. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. God works through decisions. He works through good ones and bad ones. He works through our trials. He works through relationships. Ruth's commitment to Naomi. He works through family. Boaz, the forgotten relative. He works beyond our expectations. Ruth sets out thinking she may get a few pounds. She leaves tenfold and a doggy bag. Nothing happens for no reason. And I hope you can see his providence in your own life. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Can you see how he is guided and led, even in the hard stuff? I love thinking about it. I love looking at the little bitty, little bitty decisions that have brought me where I am, good or bad, or some of the hardships. But think about the fact that I'm here. I am so glad to be your pastor. I regularly thank God for the privilege and responsibility of leading Southside Baptist Church. And I would not be here if I hadn't went to the gym in Louisville, Kentucky in 2004. Again, Spurgeon says, on how, small, on how small an incident does the greatest results may hinge. The pivots of history are microscopic. And so I was in 2004 visiting Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't have a car. I flew in visiting the seminary. And so I go to the gym because I had nothing else to do. And I'm in there lifting weights. And I see another guy across the way with his wife. And he had a Texas A&M shirt on. So here I am in the gym. Say, hey, man, you're from Texas? Yeah, I'm an Aggie. Oh, man, I'm an Abilene. Well, he had been at A&M, and he had been in the college ministry of Central Baptist Church, and his college minister was named Kevin Eckert. And now, at this time, in 2004, Kevin Eckert was at Southside. Me being from Abilene, I'd never heard of Southside. And he said, well, you got to go. He preaches expositionally, and they're elder-led. That was what he told me. And those two things were values for him, values for me, expositional preaching and elder leadership. And so I came that summer, made connections, brought some family over here, met my wife, on and on. I would not be here today if I hadn't gone to the gym on that cold Louisville night. I love the way the Lord works in our lives, large and small, meaning there really is no small decision in our life. Keep pursuing him. He will provide for you, his child. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Oh, man, that's what the world says every day. Lean on your own understanding. God says, don't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. God is the master conductor orchestrating the plan of redemption, and so may we faithfully pursue him. Acknowledging him in all our ways, not just Sunday mornings. Taking refuge under his merciful and gracious wings.